Welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking Accord. I'm Evan Ball. Today we have Carlos and Eduardo from Chicano Batman on the show. They have a brand new album, Invisible People, releasing today, May 1st, the day this podcast is being released. So we'll talk a lot about the creation of that album and how their approach differed from previous albums. We get the backstories for a couple of the tracks. We also talk about their hometown of Los Angeles, touring with Jack White, which Chicano Batman member has the best hair, and their new Ernie Ball Music Man instruments, which I'll link to in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, Carlos Arevalo and Eduardo Arenas. Carlos Arevalo and Eduardo Arenas, welcome to the podcast. What's happening? Thanks for having us. Thank yeah. you for having us. All right, just to orient our listeners so they can maybe pair names and voices. Eduardo, why don't you go first? What, what do you play in the band? I play bass in the band. I also play guitar on a couple of tunes, but my main focus is uh, bass and backup vocals. Okay, cool. And uh, Carlos? Yeah, I play uh, primarily uh, electric guitar in the band. Um, this new record that we just are about to put out, I did a little bit of some keyboards also, but guitar is my main emphasis when we're performing live. Oh, okay. And your singer does some keyboards, right, normally? Yes. Uh, Bardo Martinez, our singer, he... he plays keyboards in the past, but his, his focus when we perform live is just delivering as a, as a singer now. Gotcha. He, he, he does keyboards, guitars, backflips, front flips, and vocal theatrics. <laughs> the consummate front man. That's he's, him. He's the real deal. Yeah. Can you really do those flips? He's done a bunch of crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we're playing and I see him like jumping off the stage onto the, like, the next bottom platform. And my eye, my eyes and my mouth are just completely wide open as I'm like, is that like nine feet he's attempting right now? <laughs> Did he play sports growing up? I think so. Like okay. skater, like, you know, soccer, handball. He played a lot of handball. Okay, nice. All right. So for listeners who might not have heard Chicano Batman yet, have you guys come up with a way to describe your music or, or heard any descriptions that you like? We're, we're working on it, <laughs> you know, because... Um, I think as a band, you're stuck with whatever the public says. I mean, the music, it, it, you know, it belongs to the public. You know, it's like you write a song, but, but millions of people out there are listening to it and then they interpret it however they want. So however they say that we sound like to them is fair. Um, what was it, Carlos, the one we landed on the other day? Yeah, it was on um, Instagram and somebody posted about our, newest, our new single um, called Pink Elephant. They're like... Is this psychedelic G-Funk? If it is, I'm all for it. <laughs> and I just felt like that was like a great way to describe the sound of the, the latest single right now. Yeah. All right. Listeners got to be intrigued now. Traditionally, though, like in the past, people have called our music like uh, psychedelic soul funk kind of stuff. Yeah. Prog. Prog. Like prog rock. We do a lot of ballads and stuff like that, too. Yeah, like 70s throwback ballads that kind of thing a lot of funk yeah um we we've do we've done a lot of music inspired by brazilian tropicalia stuff how'd you come across that um i was living in brazil for like a year <clears throat> and bardo lived there for a few weeks and um and we just connected on our experience along the way we picked up caetano veloso and uh os mutanchis and a bunch of crazy crazy artists that were doing really wild and wicked things 
I remember one time I read an article when I was in Brazil that um, they described the the sound of of Os Mutanchis. The, the review was like there's no self-respecting engineer would ever ever <laughs> get sounds like this and let them pass to the master. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You guys are mostly from L.A.? Yes. Um, I was born in Los Angeles, but I grew up in the Inland Empire. I grew up in, uh, in San Bernardino County in uh, uh, Rialto, California. Oh, okay. Um, families from L.A., both uh, my mom's side goes back two, three generations living in Los Angeles. She's Mexican-American uh, background. My dad is from El Salvador. Uh, he immigrated here when he was like 12 or 11. I was born in LA and uh, Bardo, our, our lead singer, was also born in LA and he grew up in La Mirada. And uh, Gabriel Villa, our drummer, was born in Cali, Colombia. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Eduardo Aleyu. I'm from LA, man. I'm born and raised in LA. The city's, the city's mine. I, I, I'm a product of this city and, uh, and I rep it hard. That's awesome. Let's talk about that. What are what are some advantages and disadvantages of, of being from LA musically? Advantages is uh, the music scene is here. Disadvantages, the music scene is here. So there's yeah. a lot of competition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to get your voice heard. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, it makes it it makes it a, a little bit more um, fun because there's thousands of bands here. You know, and, and uh, a lot of them are trying to make it into the music biz. So when you know what's out there, you know what you know what's out there. So you try not to be like it. Yeah. And I think that's just a, a good formula to to go by it. And I think the way to to not everybody gets a band to model after everybody. You know, when I started playing guitar when I was a teenager, Metallica. That was it. All of my compositions I wanted to sell like Metallica, Iron Maiden, and uh, and Deal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then after a while, you know, it's just like oh. You know, you get into Scorpions, you know, you're like, oh, more reverb, you know, and then, you know, and then so on and so forth. And then you start molding your own identity. But um, being in the city, it, it has a sway. It has a funk. It's got traffic. It's got pollution. It's got culture. You know, it's got history. We got segregation, you know, in our communities. It's not like a melting pot. It is, but like it, you got Filipino town, Ar- little Armenia. You got Thai Town, you got Beverly Hills, you got East LA, Boyle Heights, Long Beach. You have all these different places, but you can cross every aspect of the city, like, yeah. you know, every day. You, you know, there's communities that only speak Spanish for a long time. They don't need to speak English. And so that's just the reality of what we live at. That's, that's kind of like the, the DNA of our music. It's all of that. It's like, it's, it's tacos, quesadillas, arepas, este, um, Bandeja paisas. What's uh? What's yours? What's yours, Carlos? <laughs> For me, I, I like it all. I, I mean, I, I eat a lot in Thai town. <laughs> yeah, pupusas, pupusas. That's what I'm talking about. Pupusas, yeah, that's Salvadoran uh, uh, traditional food. Pupusas. Okay, well, I've heard that. I don't know if I've had it. What is it? So you got to try, man. It's basically like think of like a quesadilla, uh-huh. but like completely enclosed, and inside it there's some some like uh, black refried beans and mozzarella cheese. And it's it's delicious. Yeah, can't go wrong there. Well, I'm sure that diversity all around you can be a strength that feeds into your music. Yeah, it's just, you know, there's so much uh, diversity here and so much culture, as Eduardo said. To me, the beauty of music is it doesn't matter language or feel. If it's good, it's universal and it'll touch you. And so my ears are always wide open and I listen to everything from, I mean, 
I'm listening to The Weeknd's new album right now. Yeah, that's something I didn't know I would ever be into. Yeah. But uh, I heard, I saw his Saturday Night Live performance and I was blown away. I've known who he is and who he, I, I mean, we played Coachella the same year he did in 2015. Okay. You know, I, I've known who he is. He's a huge R&B pop artist. And I, like I said, I, I was on watching SNL on a Saturday night and I saw his performance and I was just like, wow, this is amazing. It's just the artistry. So it's from stuff like that to Radiohead to Stereolab to Jimi Hendrix, it's just, if it's good and it's doing something original and exciting, I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure this was shot in LA. You guys did a Johnny Walker video, which looks like it was a super fun project. It's at least got that vibe. But were you surprised to get an offer to do a whiskey commercial? Totally. We were kind of like, we kind of said no. But then when they offered a billion dollars, we said, okay, let's do it. Yeah, that's right. I set up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty simple, man. <laughs> you know, uh, it was pretty cool. They, they they were very open with with the concept. They kind of they gave it like the way it went was like this. They gave us a script, and they said, "Okay, this is what we want you to do." So then we read the script, me and Bardo, and we were like, "Like we don't act like this. Okay. Like, this is this is no. We, we're not. Look, how about we do this instead? How about we do that?" And they were totally for it, and. Um, you know, this is the first brand that we ever worked with that actually was like listening to what we had to say. And they chose us because we've had this, we have this following. We've been doing this successfully for a while and they trust that we have something going on. And I felt that they gave us that space and we went for it. Well, that was going to be my next question. If, if you guys had free reign to kind of record how you did, I should explain. I can't remember if I mentioned this already, but it's basically you guys are performing the song, This Land is Your Land. And so it sounds like that wasn't the original idea? That was the original idea. They, oh, okay. they approached us and um, this was during 2016, 20, late 2015. And they just were like, we want to partner with you guys. We like this. I, we have this ad campaign that celebrates diversity and celebrates progress in this, in this country. And we think you guys represent that. And we respect, you know, your guys' outlook on, on music and art. And I think we, we think this will be a good uh, combination. And we agreed. And um, yeah, so the, originally what they wanted us to do was record a cover of Woody Guthrie's um, This Island is Your Land. And they, they gave us free reign. They were like, you don't have to do a stock exact replica of it. You can rearrange it, rewrite it, whatever you want. Sh shoot us ideas. So we yeah. gave them a few demos and they liked one in particular. And we went to the studio, recorded it, made it ours. And that was the, the, the song for the ad campaign that they had going for like a year or two, which was called uh, Keep Walking America campaign. What's funny, I was going to say beforehand is um, when we were submitting these demos, there's one that we really, really liked. We were hoping that they didn't pick it, you know? <laughs> we were like, I hope they don't pick that one because we could turn that into one of our songs. But they didn't choose it because it was too daring and too, too jagged, I think. And uh, we ended up using it and reinventing it for the title track of our upcoming album. Oh, it's, it's coming people. up on the new one. Yeah, yeah. But nice. you would never yeah. tell it's the same thing. Like Eduardo said, we had like all these ideas and basically all we were doing was taking the lyrics to from This Land Is Your Land and applying it to whatever instrumental arrangements we were coming in with. And ah. we just had that song and it was so good. And we were like, man, we want to keep this for our, our new album. You know, it was just yeah, undeniably yeah. good. And it was like he said, it was too avant-garde to put out for an ad campaign. So they went with something a little more probably catchier. But the thing about the, the, the Johnny Walker campaign is it just gave us access to mainstream America. You know, sure. simply put, 
Yeah. Um, before that, we, we, we were like creating this cult following in LA and in the Southwest. And, and then we started trickling into New York, Chicago and all across the country and then Mexico. And then we had, we did a run in Japan and we went to Chile and different, different countries. But this one kind of, kind of made it like ketchup, mustard and Chicano Batman. That was our moment, you know, right on the table. Yeah. Well, I think this is related. I, I've read interviews where you guys talk about growing up, not really seeing many Latinos in the music you'd listen to, or, or at least like in the indie rock space, I guess. Carlos, you've mentioned Omar from the Mars Volta as, as one of the figures who made you think, well, maybe there is space for me, you know. But but growing up, it was still pretty sparse. First, maybe you can talk about that. And then second, what does the landscape look like now? Yeah, so when I grew up, I mean, I grew up when I, I what I call was like MTV's like, heyday in the 90s i mean i was a little kid but you can watch quality music videos and artists that are pushing the envelope but also super popular at the same time and sometimes that doesn't go hand in hand anymore i feel but at the time you can see i was watching videos by like soundgarden nirvana chili peppers dr dre snoop dogg weezer's blue album had just come out um and anyways I, i got into i was always into guitar-based music. And it, it just as a kid, inherently, I don't know why I was attracted to it. And I didn't question what I was watching on MTV. I just saw what I saw and I liked it. It sounded good and it, it resonated with me. And it wasn't until I was a teenager, I realized, you know, I don't see anybody that looks like me like on, on, on any of these music videos. And then I discovered Rage Against the Machine when uh-huh. I was in high school. And then I found out Zach was, was Latino. Um, and also this band at the drive-in came out when I was in uh, a senior or their, their breakthrough album came out. I became hip to it and it changed my life. I remember watching David Letterman and I was watching it on a Friday night. And then I saw at the drive-in perform one arm scissor and I saw Omar and Cedric. And it was the first time I ever saw anybody that resembled me at all remotely on television on like that platform in that space that wasn't like, yeah, that wasn't like 120 minutes or some underground media source. It was like, that was like the cream of the crop, like David Letterman Friday night at the drive-in, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. It just inspired me and made me realize I could do this because I remember consciously thinking that it was music was not that rock music was, wasn't a space for someone like me. And it sounds really sad and stupid now, but at the time I just accepted it. I was like, Oh, I can never do that because I'm not a white dude with long straight hair, you know, um, but I could still enjoy the music. And that was just kind of like an awakening for me. And um, yeah, I started a, a band like that next week after I saw those guys, because I was like, I want I've always wanted to do this. And now there's proof that it can be done. Wow. So, that's cool. What's crazy too, is like the only real big Latino artist that, that as a teenager, that, we had access to was like Santana, right? Yeah. And, but Santana is like a prodigy, you know, soulful prodigy. So it's like one person and it's not like part of a band. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, like, yeah, actually like Carlos said, like, like at the driving, you know, you're part of a band, but you're also Latino and it, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, but you're creating music. I think for me, when I went to, when I was, I was into rock and zap and, and metal growing up in, in high school. And then when I went to college, I was still into that. But I think for me, I started really, um, I went to USC and there's a lot of white people, you know, and, and I hadn't had a lot of white classmates ever in my whole life, 
you know, my roommate was a white dude from, uh, his name is David Kane. He was from uh, Dallas, Texas. And, um, and he had redhead. I didn't even know what redhead looked like. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Just to get the oil heights, man. You know? And so he was my roommate and uh, great dude. Loved um, And, um, but at the same time, I found refuge in, in sticking with, with Latino music and then, and then creating Latino communities because, you know, we're less than like 8% of the school's population, you know? So we got to stick together, for, you know? And we got to find out how financial aid works, you know, and how to do all the tricks and how to, how to create mentorships and tutorships, that kind of thing. So, um, so for me, that was my route. And then I found Ozomatli. And Ozomatli ah. really opened up all the channels of everything for me. Party, dance, uh, uh, culture, identity, music, musicality. I remember seeing Raul Pacheco play guitar and he would just throw down so much flavor. And I'm thinking, damn, this guy has so much fun playing. Like, like, is, is he great? Like, yeah, I think he's great. He's playing amazing. He's just, he's just having fun, you know? And I think they just projected this big old fierce spirit of togetherness. And, uh, and that's when, that's when I was like that. I want to do that. I, I have that power. I have that in me. I want, how do you get to there? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think I just kept seeing them and other bands like slow rider, um, burning star, East LA Sabor factory, all these bands in early two thousands in the LA scene. Um, and, uh, and it's just, that really awakened me to, to the possibilities that can be done not only in their city, but, but in the country. Yeah. And to, um, just to follow up and answer the second half of your question, now the, the landscape is very different than it was um, 15, 10, 20 years ago. There's a lot of groups that are Latino that are doing great and are making a splash. It's a really beautiful thing to see the music space open and the music sphere open to encapsulate all these different voices now. And I just think that just goes with a change in culture and people just opening up more and realizing that all it does is add to our our humanity, like being exposed to different people and music coming together, trying to make a, a good song, whether in the underground or whether you're talking about like East LA punk scene in the eighties, Latinos have been making music. It's just the uh, hasn't been as visible. It hasn't been as visible. And now it is because those avenues are opening and just culture is changing and progressing. Social yeah. media platforms make it an equal playing field for a lot of people who are highly creative to get noticed. And fortunately for us, the Latino community has always had a rich, rich batch of talent. And, um, you know, when you don't get exposure from the major, major labels, like in the 90s, you know, early 2000s, before YouTube, before MySpace, all that, that we didn't have a chance. But when you create your own space and then you create your own uniqueness, you know. Yeah, you go uh, direct to the, the people now. Direct to the people, you know, and, uh, and that's, you know, and then write good songs. At the end of the day, it, just, it goes back to you writing good songs because that's yep. what makes you eternal. All right. Let's talk about your new album. So what's the release date? May 1st, 2020. Okay, yeah. cool. So, so for people listening, we are April 3rd as we're speaking right now. But this podcast will probably air around there, maybe a little afterwards. Do you ever get nervous before you are releasing things? Just, just nervous about how it might be received by the public? Honestly, me? Never. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, for me, it's like, and everyone's different in this band. I'll tell you that for sure. But for me, releasing music is one part of a hundred parts of a bigger goal. 
that you're trying to get to. I don't know. I'm always hungry. I'm always hungry. I'm always trying to see what the next goal is, what the next obstacle is, what's the next influence, what's, what are we going to do, what's the next power play? You know, releasing the song is, is great because we, we finally give the audience what they've been waiting for. You know, and it's really hard to put yourself in the position of the audience sometimes because all you've been doing is busting your ass you know, for the last year, uh, making demos, getting in the studio, waiting on the mixes to come back, critiquing the mixes, fighting your own bandmates over like, more bass, less bass, pen left, no, right, pen right. right. You know, these mundane, <laughs> stupid little things that mean the absolute world to the four of us, right? And they don't mean nothing to anybody out there. Nobody's going to, like, 1% is going to tell, you know, <laughs> the, the changes that, that we made, you know, that meant 100% to us. So we're drained, you know, then, then the rollout plan comes out, you know, in the artwork, I'm not really feeling this. I'm feeling this. I want to go this direction. We should do animated. No, we should do a picture. We should come out in the album cover. We shouldn't come out at all. You know, so a lot of these things get ironed out in, in the, in the production and the rollout. And then once you got that going on, then, and then you really have to sit down as a four of you again and be like, okay, what do we want to tell the world with this album? We're like, man, we just like, who, who knows? You know, these are just 12 songs. But then if you don't really start working on a narrative, then, um, then you lose an opportunity to really, to really bring it home, you know, what it is you're really trying to do. And the, and the media outlets and all that, they're waiting for you to say something anyways. So you might as well say something sincere, real, and, uh, and project what it is that you want to be. Because then you, then you raise a ceiling on, 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 uh, on what you're trying to aim for, and you have some space to grow into that. Yeah, I mean, for the public, it's this is a a sudden event. You're releasing something, but for the band, this is a long, arduous process. Two two years in the making, to be specific, um, from demoing and writing to recording and mixing and mastering, and it's a long process and um, it's a tedious one, but like a labor of love, definitely. And like as Eduardo said, we're at, we're an actual band. The four of us voice our opinions 25 25 and so that can be we could be at loggerheads as they say sometimes it allows us to just grow as um as musicians and as people you know especially as you, as we get older you learn to to learn to see the other perspective a little better and um, for the sake of the greater good you know sometimes we have to get unanimous unanimous votes you know like it has to be all four of us yeah. But sometimes when it's three against one, it still doesn't feel good. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, oh man, he's going to get us back somehow. <laughs> but to answer your question, Evan, for me, when, when a release date comes, I'm excited. I'm, and this is what I've been working for for two years. I cannot, right. I, like right now, I'm like glowing just thinking about, oh, I can't wait for our, our audience and new people just to hear the, the remaining 10 songs. We've already released two, uh, two singles. I just, can't wait yeah, for yeah. the whole, not only just hear the remaining 10 songs, but hear those songs that they've already heard in context of the statement. Because when we write a record, we think of it as a whole thematic statement, as opposed to, uh, I know uh, the, the trend now, or I don't know if it's a trend, but I know the music industry has moved in a way where it's like real single bass. And it's like, come on, you gotta, you gotta have the single. That's what matters most. You know, the album is kind of secondary and, we're vinyl collectors. We have big vinyl record uh, collections and we know what it's like to put on an, an LP, listen to songs one through six all the way through and flip it over and be like, ah, I, I like how 
they intent they intentionally put this as the first track on side B because it it, it needed that space to breathe from the last track on on side A. We're that kind of spirit, and so you yeah. always think of it as a whole album statement. So yeah. for me, I just want people to I can't wait for them to understand where these songs fit within that whole uh, context. No, I get I got you. I get I guess I meant like that excitement that you have almost as a vulnerability, I would think, because you're so excited for it to go how you want it to go. But if it doesn't, it feels like you could be set up for disappointment. I think that's why I'm not excited all the time. But <laughs> because, uh, you know, um, you know, it's like, how can I say it? Like, I'm, I do really good with bad criticism. You know, that's I have cool. this thing where like when somebody is talking smack on Instagram, you know, makes a bad comment, I'll go and I'll like it. You know, and I'll be the only person to like it, <laughs> you know, and sometimes people just want to be heard. That's it. That's yeah. it. in the story. They want to have their opinion be heard. And uh, yeah, I'll just validate that. That's cool. Everyone's got an own opinion. But um, I, honestly, I feel like also, too, it's like I know they're going to like it. <laughs> right, I know right. they're going to like it. <laughs> and I'm, you know, and this is the, the first album of all of our albums where I'm just like, yeah, this is it. This is gold. Like this is, this is it. I can't wait to hear it. Well, speaking of, you do have one song out, Pink Elephant, and there's a very unique guitar line and bass line. And, and so when I hear that stuff, I always wonder, just the musician in me, like, I'm curious for that song, what came first, the bass line or the guitar line? Eduardo came up with all the parts, the guitar parts for that oh, song really? and the bass. Yeah. Eduardo was the guitar part, part of like a jam and you found like that little golden nugget and then sampled it into a, like a section. This song started off as a ballad, <laughs> you know? And then, um, and then I showed it to the guys one time at a, a, during our demo sessions and they were like, this is cool. And I was like, yeah, okay. Let me put it away. <laughs> you know, it's like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't like really ring home to somebody, it's not going to make it. That's the way it goes. So then I just kind of put it away. And then I was just kind of like in my studio, just setting up cool drum sound. And uh, I, I just had this idea of, of just doing it like a hip hop song, you know, or just a beat. Just, I think Solange's album had just come out. The, the Something at the Table uh, is called. The drums on that and the bass was just like super simple and so thematic and spacious and so grooving. I was like, man, how do you play like that? So I had those kind of themes, just and 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 D'Angelo and Dilla and and, and all these these hip hop uh, artists that just throw down hard. So God, when I just kind of like I was just like, this is my idea, and I just was just repeating the same bass line, and uh, I was using a pick and a Lyle bass, like a Japanese Lyle bass with the flat worms on it, but I got it at Oregon for like three hundred bucks. It's like a cool little bass, which I ended up tracking with. And um, we did the whole song, added some chords, but then um, at the very end, we finished the track. God and I were kind of happy with it. I was like, I don't know, man, it's missing something. Let, let me put something at the end, like some kind of like conclusion. And then that's where I came up with the, with the main riff. Oh, and then wow. I was like, that's great. I was like, that's it. And then I doubled the riff so that it can have like a cooler, fuller sound. And I was like, that's it. And then after like, I don't know, a couple hour session, I was like, you know what? Let me try this. So then I copy pasted that to the very beginning of the song and I was like, Oh, there it is. Uh, now it's central to the whole song. Yeah. So then that's yeah. just, it's like, okay, let's just do that. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Cause it is so uh, conspicuous, I guess it made me wonder about 
how that that came about. And, and, awesome. and it's it's also in the spirit of playing like like a sampler, you yeah, know, like yeah, a, I could a see that. 404 or something, yeah. and and uh, or an MPC or something like that, like Madlib, you know, and, and all these different dope uh, beat makers. They have a feel. Like Jay Dilla had a feel. He he invented basically Neil Soul through his MPC, and drummers try to play like the way he was sampling all his records. So Quest Love and Chris Dave and all these amazing drummers, they were just, they were way behind the beat because Dilla's aesthetic was, was like that. And they were like, that's fly. Let's, let's play like that. So they were playing like, like machines, you know, ironically. Yeah, and yeah. that created a whole different genre and, uh, you know, and it evolved and it's just so fly. When we recorded that song, because Chicano Batman tracks live. So Bar- uh, Eduardo wrote those guitar parts and the bass. And then we have to reconstruct it so we can all play it together at the same time. So I was obviously the guitar player. I was given the role of trying to play his guitar parts and it was a doozy because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, try to play like this sample. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm, yeah, trying, yeah. I'm trying to drag as hard as I can. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I was like, you got to drag and also mute, like, yeah. mute, like cut it off, like right before you start again. It was like technically stupid, but it was fun. It was a great challenge. And, um, it was definitely a different headspace to approach um, playing guitar because I would never come up with anything like that for sure. You know, that's just not where I'm coming from as a, as a guitar player, but it was a fun challenge. And um, I mean, the recorded version that we did as a band is just amazing. It's beautiful. And you know, yeah, we, really, really cool track. We wrote a bridge together that just really tied the whole thing together. And um, it was, it was fun. So how did the experience of, of creating this album differ from previous albums? Maybe your approach, mindset, stage in life, anything that stands out? Most definitely. I would say to start off, Bardo in the past would bring in the majority of the compositions, about 80%. Mm. You know, so it's like, and basically songs that he puts lyrics to are songs that end up making the record. You know, so when right, he right, brings right. in songs that he wrote and he has lyrics to, high likelihood, that's, it's, a, it's a pretty complete song. Is he, is he writing on keyboards normally? Or guitar? He writes on anything, man. Okay. He'll write on a on a on a leaf from a tree, bro. With a <laughs> with a pen. Like yeah. he's he's gifted okay. like that. He's he's yeah. a songwriter. Yeah. You know? It doesn't matter what what it is, what language or what instrument or, or, or what, you know. But then he'll bring it in and it's rough, you know, we'll just give it our personality and, and uh, involve the track and uh, and then make it Chicano Batman. On this new record everyone came in from everywhere there was no rules in terms of genre who brings in what like in the past it would be kind of challenging for me to bring in a composition because i'm a bass player but i'm like you know what we're going to disregard at least i was like let's disregard if we can even play this live um like i'm going to play guitar on this uh carlos was coming in with demos where he's playing synths you know but even he, he was like not trying to play since live because he's a guitar player, you know? And we were like, dude, you can play keys, man. You're playing keys now. It was just about getting out of our old habits. And I think that's one of the big things about this album that really shined through. We just got rid of complacency and, um, and really started thinking outside the box in terms of how to, to get a composition together and also try to minimize the amount of chords we use because before we would kind of be kind of like, I don't know, almost show offs or something. Just be like, yeah, let's try to like do this song. Let's have like 12 different rhythm changes, you know, and, uh, 
and five key changes just just for just for the hell of it you know yeah yeah, yeah. and on these i think um i think we just let two chords kind of just flow through and the challenge was okay how do you make this live forever and how do you make this melodic piece really shine and how do yeah. you embrace it how do you how do you do just the right amount of harmony um polyphonic synths versus organs versus uh, monophonic synths carlos he was coming in with all kinds of like electronic vibes that i was not feeling at all man and, <laughs> and i was resisting so hard but then he was pushy for it and um you know much respect to every band member in this in this crew because everyone is so deep in their own style of music that they bring to the table. Um, everyone's so diverse, like so diverse. But um, a lot of the sound of this album definitely is uh, is due to to Carlos's push for a new direction. Maybe you can tell more about that, Carlos. Yeah. So for this record, uh, thanks, Eduardo. It was very nice of you to say that. The instruments were more of a, a means to an end. They were the tools for making the song. Whereas before it was like, I'm the guitar player. I play the guitar. He's the bass player. He has to play the bass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Bardo is the keyboardist. He has to play keys and sing. And then Gabriel's a drum. This time it was like, no, we're, we're just going to be songwriters and we're going to do whatever we need to do to make the song be the best song it can be. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was a really hard uh, place to come to because we all have egos. You know, it's no matter how hard you try, and you don't want to be egotistical. Like, you know, your ego gets bruised when it's like, hey, like, you know, I can probably play that keyboard line better than you, or I can play that guitar part better than you, or bass, you know, whatever. But instead of looking at it like that, it was just looking at it as like, all right, we're four parts of a whole. Let's try to make the best um, end statement we can. And once we had that MO, we, the sky was the limit, and we were coming up with things that we never had done before. I particularly wanted to play guitar differently from past records because the past records, our sound was really rooted in like that soul aesthetic. And our, it was like our mutated version of that. But soul music has a lot of emphasis on the guitar playing rhythm on the two and four on the snare hits. And I didn't want to do another album of that because I already had done like two, one and a half albums doing that. And I knew I was more of an, no disrespect to soul musicians and guitar players are amazing. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, after two albums doing that, I was like, all right, I'm ready for something a little different. I want to, I want to show my, my uh, capabilities as a musician and specifically for the guitar. I wanted to play differently. And I also started, as Eduardo said, writing on, on polyphonic synthesizers. And that whole headspace was just a completely fresh approach to writing songs and adding my guitar to those songs meant I had to play guitar differently. This meant like now more than ever, like, you know what? The guitar can't be noodling because this synth is taking up a lot of the the harmonic space. Like you're going to have to find like maybe one or two notes that are just rhythmic within it to drive the song. That was a a fun conclusion to come to. And it was very, very uh, refreshing and inspiring. Dude, we we could totally be assholes. You know, like, like say somebody will come in with an idea and if two of us don't like it and we're on the same page, we'll start like, oh, no, that's whack, man. <laughs> that sounds like, that sounds like, you know, and then we'll just name a band to make fun of it. You know, like, oh, that sounds like, uh, like. Paul Abdul. Yeah, like, exactly. Like Genesis. <laughs> that sounds like Sting, man. You know, and then, you know, Tommy, you know, t- <laughs> like, dude, we'll just get down and dirty on it. You know, and um, 
one time, Carlos was like, because he was trying to push this like new wave, new kind of rock kind of vibe. And um, he had this idea. So uh, one day, Bardo was not available. So he, I, he wanted to track this. I was like, come to my studio. Let's do this. So then we invited Gabriel over. So we recorded this track. It turned out pretty amazing. We basically did a coup without Bardo because if Bardo was in the room, he would have been like, nah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so we just kind of let it, let it live, let it breathe. And then um, we showed it to Bardo and he loved it. But see, it's, it's, diff- it's, it's a tricky thing with band members. You know, it's like family, yeah. man. Like, you know, when someone's going to say no to something, yeah. unless you set it up in a certain way. And then they'll say yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know, we have yeah. to manipulate each other really bad. All right. Well, cool. So a lot of experimentation then on this album. Does it, does most of that happen in the recording studio or is it more in, in a jam room situation or are they, are they one and the same? We have a rehearsal space. Okay. And for this record at the beginning, we were, we were meeting up at the rehearsal space, writing demos, recording them there. Uh, Eduardo brought a Pro Tools rig. And then we realized, you know what, we can just go to each other's studios and write. And so we started doing a lot of that. But experimentation was happening even throughout the studio, the album at Barefoot Recording, where we tracked the album as a group. Yeah, th- down to the wire. There's that one song, Invisible People, that I was telling you about, which is the, the title track. That one came in like at double time. You know, that one came in. And then the, the end track is like, is, is like less than half of that in terms of tempo. And um, we were just like, let's try this out. You know, we made it fatter, way slower. We, were, we did not see that coming. Our producer, Leon Michael, was, Michael was just like, yeah, let's slow it down. And then um, when someone says that in the band, you're going to get a shoe thrown at you, right? Right, right. <laughs> but when it's a producer, we're like, cool, yeah, let's all try it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of psychology. And then whoever's, whoever's like not feeling it, it's just quiet as hell until, you know, three hours later when we're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That song in particular, when we were, when he came to track it, we were playing him our, our demoed version of it. And I was very proud of my guitar parts. I was like, I have fire guitar parts on this whole song. And he was like, we need a different tempo. You know, I think this could be a different feel. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I worked so hard on those guitar arrangements and we were going to track like in two hours. So it was like the big leagues. It was like, all right, come up with some meaningful guitar parts right now. Cause we're going to track this song in two hours. And we did we're it. waiting for you. Let's do it. We're waiting for you. Come on, Carlos, write yeah. the classic line. And we did it. I did it. I mean, um, we all did it because we all had to rewrite our parts. <laughs> it wasn't just me. I'm just giving my first person example. We were up to the challenge and he, the producer was right. Like the end product ended up being so much more superior than what we came in with as the demo. And uh, it was just being open to experimentation and being open to change things on the fly. If it wasn't feeling right, then all right, let's change it. We got to change it so it, that it does feel good. Obviously, the, the future is extremely hard to, to read right now. But what are your plans after the release? Before... Um, the pandemic happened. We had uh, planned on going on a big tour. We were going to do Coachella. It was going to be our third year playing Coachella. We made it up to like the third line of the, the yeah. poster. That was a huge yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. We, were, like, we were at like the first line the first year we played, 2015. Uh-huh. Um, that was going to kick off like a two-month tour throughout the whole North America. And um, with Le Butcherettes, an, an amazing group from El Paso. And uh, I think 
LA, Guadalajara. They're all connected with the, with the Omar family. Um, I think he produced one of their records. Omar Rodriguez Lopez, excuse me. Yeah, we know him. Great guitar too. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we were going to do that, but that's all on hold. We don't know when we're going to play live again. We're hoping late summer, but things are changing every hour, every day now. But so right now the focus is just making do with, with a situation, which is you're seeing a, a big, um, a big turn where people are using their social media platforms and more inventive ways to be engaged with the fans and to, uh, get the music out there. And so we've been doing some stuff. Like I did a guitar lesson on Chicano Batman's Instagram. I did like a live session, a live, uh, feed where, I talked about my guitar approach, all in a way of just keeping the discussion going of Chicano Batman has some new music coming out, you know? Yeah, yeah. We're focusing on stuff like that right now. Do you have any videos you already shot that are in the can? Yeah, so before before the state had the mandated uh, shutdown about three weeks ago now, the day we filmed the Pink Elephant live session at Barefoot Recording, um, we also filmed two other tracks. So those are going to get that content luckily is already done and edited. It just needs to come out at the right time. So I think some of those are going to, those videos are going to get released towards the end of April and into May when the album is fully out. But we did have uh, plans to record a, uh, a music, another music video for the next big radio push single, but can't do it right now. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not wise. It's not safe yet. Yeah. All right. When you guys look back at Chicano Batman's career so far, are there certain markers or events you can point to and say that was important or that that was a big move forward? Most definitely touring with Jack White. That was a big one. Okay. Because he, he he chose us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's big. like uh, we weren't begging anybody to like, well, maybe Carlos was begging the tour manager, but uh, you know I'm saying? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lalo. Uh, but um he's his friend but um you know they like they like our music so a big band like jack white had faith in our band and we said oh hell yeah we belong on these on these stages what year was that 2015 we got asked to play um the the last tour leg of jack white's lazaretto tour okay um and that was also the same year we played coachella for the first time and we were an unsigned band at the time we were completely oh um, really yeah, oh, we were that's right. uh, DIY, self-release. We were printing, we were calling Rainbow Records in Canoga Park and pressing our own vinyl and doing it all ourselves at that point. So yeah, it, I had to borrow my dad's truck time. to go pick up crates of records and then yeah. store them who knows where. <laughs> and that was the, that was the first time um, we got recognized in a national spotlight because it was a big deal in 2015 for Jack White to ask for... Latinos from LA to go on a tour like you that was like something you didn't really see it got like national attention and we were like in Billboard magazine like talking about it like uh in doing all these interviews about what it was like to and also same thing with Coachella like the announcement of that tour and the announcement of us playing Coachella happened the same week and so that was also a national uh headline for us because again we were self-released we were under the radar we were like kind of like the LA house band for the underground scene. And all of a sudden we got this national recognition and it was one of the first times like Coachella had had like a, 
kind of a, a band from LA, like unsigned, be a part of the festival. And we were one of the first bands to break through to that. And also one of the few bands that were Latinos to, to make it onto uh, the lineup. I think the only ones I could remember beforehand were that were US Latinos was like Ozo Motley, like a few years back. So it was a big deal that we were like this underground unsigned band, like making a wave. Yeah, those are big a, breaks. Yeah. And that yeah. was our, those were our big breaks. And then five minutes later, we signed, <laughs> we went with, the, we got a manager and, the, and a, a booker. The other one too is when we first met with Brad Sands, who's our manager. I remember that we went to like West Hollywood to this office and um, we all were like dressing nice, which meant like just, you know, a college shirt or something. Uh-huh. And um, we were there meeting with this guy. We're like, okay, we're going to read with this manager. He's interested in having us. And he's just like, Hey, what's up guys? I like what you guys are doing. It's cool. Let's work together. We're like, okay, well, how much are you going to get in terms of split or, what is this like? What do you plan to do with this? Oh yeah, you know, just like, have a couple shows, see how it goes, you know, and go from there. <laughs> like yeah, but so how, what about the contract? Like how many years? Oh, we don't got to sign anything. We can just see how it goes. Well, I'm just like, what the hell is going on right now? Yeah, like, is yeah. this how is this how management deals get right. done? Like this guy's wearing t-shirt and jeans. He's like, we're not signing anything. Let's just fill it out. Let's just see how it goes. I won't charge you anything for the first six months, you know. And I'm like, I don't know, dude. This is how it goes in the biz. <laughs> and right. um you know here we are today and yeah, yeah just to to give like a little uh context who brad sands is brad sands uh used to be fish's tour manager for like a decade or something 20 years 20 years he's oh, like man. he's like if you're a fish head you know who brad sands is he's like uh what peter grant is to led zeppelin brad sands is to fish but he also manages Stuart copeland of the police so when the police did their last reunion like brad was telling us about flying on a private each police member had their own private jet to each gig and it's it just crazy he's he's uh he's also les claypool's manager so he manages primus you know he had the uh he had the experience and we were super green and didn't know what the heck we were doing and i think our fear was is this gonna be like the backstreet boys manager like he's just gonna like you know take all our money and like screw us over like <laughs> right, right he was not like that his his reputation preceded him and he was like, just like a blessing, like just such a trustworthy guy. Like he made things happen and he put his money where his mouth was. And it just, he's just like, you know, amazing. That's awesome. So we built so many, we've built this band, man, from scratch. We've, we've built this, we built our following, you know, one by one. So by the time we're, we're meeting with uh, Windish agency, who is now paradigm or or red light management, they're just like, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Even ATO Records, we're just like, keep doing what you're doing. It's obviously working. So we're kind of still in charge of our own narrative, our own aesthetic, and our own directions, which is a dream come true, man. That's good to hear. Hey, is there a worst or best gig ever that comes to mind? I got worst. You want to, you, you can take the best, Carlos. Okay, go do your worst first. Worst first, best after. Irwindale, California. <laughs> <laughs> we had this, um, this summer at the park festival you know like those music at the park yeah you know? yeah um so we had one of those and it was a bunch of old people they wanted a band to like dance to and that kind of thing and and we um we just had like two cumbias you know that we stretched for like 30 minutes each uh we had to play for two hours nobody there was like a everybody was doing like a picnic and like you know uh chairs and that kind of thing but nobody stood up to dance nobody was at all excited during one of the breaks, one of the women was patiently waiting like 10, 15 minutes to talk to me. And then at the end, she said, um, she said oh, oh, hi. Um, I just want to let you know that you guys should never play this festival ever again. 
And, <laughs> she waited to tell you that. Yeah, she waited. <laughs> She's wearing all black too. And I always remember her. She looked like a black widow. And then um, she was like, you should never play this festival again. We wanted people, we wanted to move. We want to dance. And you guys are not bringing that. We want bands like Los Pistoleros and these other bands. They help, they, they make it move. You guys are not doing that. And I told her, <laughs> you know what? You don't have to worry. We will never, ever play this festival ever again. <laughs> you know, it's a deal. It's a deal. To top it off, we had to rent our, we had to get our own PA. And <laughs> oh my God, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. There's crossovers and like power amps and EQs and like yeah. the sound that was coming out of there sounded like this. <laughs> like during, during the whole set, nothing was audible. The vocals were distorted. There, nothing was able to come out through the actual PA. We were trying to get volunteer from the crowd to come help us set up our PA <laughs> like that. So on top of that, it sounded disgusting. There's been, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> the lady was so angry, man. She was just, and it's so funny because like I said, this was, be, this was like, that was 2013, 2014. She was hating on us. And then like the next day, we literally played like a sold out show at the Echo, which was amazing. <laughs> That's right. There you go. And the night Redemption. before that, the night before that, I think we played at Slim's in Santa in San Francisco, like a sold out show with uh, the soft white sixties. And then that same day, we had to play. We had to drive down like nine hours. We got a flat in our Astro van. <laughs> we got a flat like in San Rafael or something like that. And then it took us like nine hours to get here. We're all starving. We had to go pick up the PA, then go set up, then play. No eating. And this lady's like, the reason. The show also went so poorly was because we were like being hustlers. We weren't supposed to be playing an announced show if we were playing the Echo. So we kind of like did that show like slightly since uh, it was kind of like not LA County. We were technically able to play it, but we weren't really allowed to promote it. Yeah, so yeah. none of our fans knew we were playing it. So none of our fans showed up. So if it had been like a regular show where we were promoted, it, it would have been packed and it would have been a completely different scenario. But because we couldn't promote it. Yeah, uh, yeah. We just had to deal with whatever the built-in audience was. And that was like some, you know, people in their 60s that want to hear some like just lowrider oldies music or dance cumbia music. And that's not where we were. We brought our crazy like psychedelic prog rock <laughs> music to them. Um, for me, the best show is um, we played a lot of amazing shows. We've, we've done tours with Vampire Weekend, uh, Jack White, Alabama Shakes, um, Portugal the Man. One of the shows that really stands out for me is we were playing the, we had a tour with Portugal, the man, and it was in the South. And one of the shows got canceled in North Carolina because there was a hurricane that was projected to hit the day of our show. And so we had been watching the weather for a while. Coincidentally, I had lunch with Jack White's tour manager, Lalo Medina, like the week before the tour started. And we were just talking and I was like, yeah, our tour got canceled and, you know, on this date and, so now we're without a date there. So I don't know. We're probably just going to take our time in, in New Orleans or something. And he was like, what's the date on that? I'm like, oh, it's this. He's like, oh, he's all, Jack is playing in Shreveport, Louisiana, you know, the same day. We have an opener that we're talking to, but maybe if that falls through, I'll let you know. I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, I didn't, I wasn't holding my breath. And then we get a call and Jack White wants us to play the, the Shreveport gig. They, they decided to go with us over this other band. So that was great. We had a we we had a sub for the gig that we lost with Portugal the Man, so we went from New Orleans with Portugal the Man, and then the next day drove to Shreveport and played with Jack White in 
what was the name of the theater, Eduardo? It was where Elvis played. It was, it was like, the reason Jack White was playing this town was part specifically because it was like this historical venue that like Elvis played. That shit was haunted, dude. That shit was haunted. Yeah, it was haunted. There was like the we had to, we had to walk through the basement to like yeah. go through the sides, one of the sides of the stage. It's like forties furniture just stacked up, dust, lights. It's all dark. Wasn't there a jail in the the basement? I think it was a prop. Yeah, Something. like a prop of a jail. Like, oh, it was like a dungeon, bro. But this is best gig ever, right? But this is the best, best gig. Ever. Let me tell you why. It was, but it, I mean, that was you know that was a little spooky the basement, but. Yeah, the yeah. theater was so beautiful and historical. And this was three years later after touring with Jack when we were the greenest band he's probably ever taken on tour. <laughs> you know, we didn't know what we were doing. And now here we came back. We're seasoned our album, our first record with ATO Records had already been out like two years and was getting like critical acclaim from like the likes of NPR. And we had like a, a college radio hit with it. Friendship is a small boat in a storm, etc. Yeah. And here we were. And it was like, it's like we were the scrub freshmen when we played with them. And now we were like the senior upperclassmen and we smashed that gig. We played That's awesome. amazing. He was watching side stage. His whole band was just giving us so much love after. And we went to the green room and I, I talked to him. I hadn't seen him in a few years and he was just had nothing but accolades for us. And he was just like, I'm so proud of you guys. Like you guys have been everywhere. I've been seeing you everywhere. Like on all the, you're getting all the looks and it was just, I just so feel like cool. we, yeah. we did it. Like, you know, it, right, it was just right, like right. proof. Like you invested in us and you were right. Like we, we did end up becoming like a, a great band, you know? Yeah. That's really cool. All right. Did I hear you guys got some new instruments recently? Oh, yes. Oh, All yeah. Right. What'd you guys get? Yeah. So um, this is my second music man that I, that I have the pleasure of owning. And it's, yeah, BFR, Albert Lee model with the electric shimmer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys were kind enough, though, to customize it a little bit for me because I, I can't live without the, the whammy. You guys added a whammy to it, and you guys were gracious enough to also put a ebony fretboard. I like ebony, too. That's cool. So I, well, I've seen you play the Stingray on videos before. I'm juggling between the two. The Stingray is yeah. awesome. It's, it's real similar to the, the guitars I used to play in the past, like the, just the way the, the body and the neck uh, sit together. Sure. And so it's like, it's like a glove, like it's recognizable. The Albert yeah. Lee, we'll see, but you know, I've been playing it a lot this weekend. Yeah. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Cool. Any new surprises for you, Eduardo? Oh man. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. I got the love of my life through the mail and I had a quarantiner before I brought her in. Oh. <laughs> for sure. It was, a. I got an old smoothie, a 40th anniversary reissue. Oh, nice. My job has always been just bottom end you know, bottom end, not yeah. no slaps, none of that. So when I first started talking, uh, Carlos introduced me to, to Tim and, and the people over at Ernie Ball. And uh, I was just like, this is my role. Like, this is what I do. So I tried out some of the Stingrays and they were nice, but it just, it just had too much top end for my taste. Right. And then, and then um, the last base I tried was, this, was the old smoothie and uh, it had chrome flat, it had flat ones on it. And it also had those little tiny uh, mute pads, yeah, yeah, underneath yeah, yeah. every every string. So, and it has a, an, an adjustable height. And I thought that was that was the key for me between the flats that and the magnet that's out of phase with the string, so that when I hit the string, it doesn't like it's not so loud and not so like in your face. It yeah. has some time to respond. 
I, I appreciated that. So I got that base. And uh, what's tripping me out is that the three knobs are volume, tone, and bass, just like an amplifier. And uh, I've never had that before. You know, normally you have two pickups and one of them is to switch between, you know, some bridge and the neck and a combination of the both. But this is, if you want more bass, just increase the bass. If you want, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's so simple that it's so complicated for me. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, I've never had to do that before. What, what color did you say you got? Oh man, I got a pastel pink. Oh, and then really? I, I had, um, it's a pastel pink with gold hardware, um, nice. a roasted maple neck, and I had um, some inlays, some block inlays, some uh, Mother Pro inlays on them. Man, you guys will be styling. Yeah, it's just like the sexiest thing. <laughs> I just yeah. pick it up every day and I play it. It's like, you know, uh, sometimes you can only get as good as, you know, as the admiration you have for your own instrument. And yeah. I think for this one, it's like, I, I just can't not play it. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Hey, does your drummer have, have a mullet still? He, he retired the mullet. He oh, that's too it. bad because that's, that's one of the best I've ever seen. Oh, it was like the most metal mullet you've ever seen. Like the best part was, would be when he would get like a haircut and he would get like a flat top mullet. Like it was super metal. Like he's committed, dude. Yeah, <laughs> such a power mullet. It was such a power mullet. Like people power mullet. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I remember because he has he has the best hair in the band by far. I think like totally super thick. Super, like he has that forehead hair. I'm I'm the bald guy in the band, so he has like that hairline that's like thick on his temple and his forehead and just like a rope. <laughs> God, and um oh it's funny and uh <laughs> you know he had, like he had like long hair and it was like just like freaking fabio like just flowing luscious hair and then i remember i went to pick him up one day for a, a, a practice a rehearsal and he got in the car and he had like a flat top on the top and then a mullet in the back and he was like i got a mullet and i was like you sure did <laughs> <laughs> yeah like a military mullet like like he's an ex-marine from desert storm or something you know and just uh, like but he's colombian so he can he can get away with it yeah well maybe you can convince him to bring it back sometime well what he's doing now is he has like this epic beard like the fullest beard you've ever seen like the same way his hair grows on his head he has it on his face it's like epic. <laughs> yeah he could do things with hair <laughs> that's great yeah. all right well hey carlos eduardo thank you so much for being on the podcast this is a lot of fun, man. Thanks so much for having us. This was fun. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for tuning in to Striking a Chord and Ernie Ball Podcast. Stay tuned. In coming weeks, we have a slew of new phone interviews we've done now that everyone's at home. So be sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to contact us, email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. Me and Gabo, uh, the drummer, our lines get changed every time we go to the studio, you know, because it's like, um, it's like you had your, your fish and your turtles and your frogs in a bucket and some rocks. And it's like, yeah, I've been living with these for like, you know, eight months. They're my friends. And then you put them in an aquarium and you're like, oh, that's what it looks like, <laughs> you know? And so then a lot of the stuff on the bottom end, uh, we have to adjust and, um, and you have to adjust it quickly. And that's, that's just thrill to me. That's what I love most about recording, the pressure. I love the pressure. It's like Mamba mentality. You got to eat it. You got you to gotta love it because, you know, um, they're going to track right now. They're, we're going to tape, you know, and there's like a big crew 
of people. And um, the best thing you can do is just not stand out, you know, and just, ma- and just embrace what everyone else is doing and still be original and lyrical and smooth, you know? And I love the challenge. 